Long-term care facilities fined for violating regulations. The federal government triggers their incident report group over BC port workers' strike. Children jailed in Louisiana's Angola prison are being locked inside cells for nearly 24 hours in sweltering heat. And the Netherlands drops its policy to refuse sending military aid to Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Yemen, thanks to Turkey's decision to support Sweden's entry into NATO. Good morning. It's Thursday, July 20th. I'm Nora, and here are your headlines. First this morning to Burlington, Ontario, where the Billings Court Manor is the third residence in the Burlington-Hamilton area that has been charged a financial penalty related to problems with infection prevention and control. In April 2022, the Ontario government created a new financial penalty for long-term care facilities that consistently fail to meet legislative standards. By then, the Doug Ford government had been criticized for not doing enough to address inadequacies within long-term care facilities. This was their solution, these fines, for repeatedly failing to meet legislative standards. The facility has been charged $5,500, which is, what, worth the cost of a single room for like a month and a half? The facility has 160 beds. This fine is peanuts. The fine is related to the facility's lack of assurance that residents were helped to have their hands washed before eating. Some residents with cognitive disabilities needed help, and the facility was not consistently ensuring that their hands were washed before they ate. The issue was first identified in April and May 2022, but then when another inspection happened in January 2023, the facility was still failing to ensure that residents were helped to have their hands washed. Think about that. Under the new protocol, it took nearly a year to address an issue so simple, and the fine that was levied more than a year later was just $5,500. The Hamilton Spectator's Joanna Frickich reports that the facility is a for-profit facility. It's licensed to Mary Ban Holdings Limited, and she was unable to pin anyone down from the company for comment. During the first two years of the pandemic, Billings Manor reported two deaths related to a COVID-19 outbreak, according to my own research. The two other facilities that have been fined were the Black Adder Continuing Care Center in Dundas. They were fined $5,500 as well, and that was over inadequate wound care for residents. Shalom Village in Hamilton was nailed for failing to comply with the previous order for, get this, reviewing their, quote, mandatory reporting policies that ensure allegations of abuse or neglect are investigated, unquote. For something so serious, the facility was fined just $1,100. That's frankly a joke. Next to British Columbia, where the federal government is treating the BC port strike as a national crisis. Yesterday was a big day of news for that struggle. First, the night before, Labour Minister Seamus O'Regan hinted that he was prepared to intervene in the strike, violate the Charter's guarantee of free and fair collective bargaining, and bring back-to-work legislation down onto the workers. This was after the membership had rejected a new contract that a mediator had proposed, and they continued their strike. 
Then yesterday morning, Canada's National Labour Board ruled that the strike was no longer legal, that because the union had not given another 72 hours notice to re-go on strike, it was not allowed under their reading of labour legislation. The union responded to say that the strike had never ended, so there was no need to have a 72-hour notice of strike. They were already on strike and have been on strike since July 1st. The union went back on strike and then packed in the picket lines when the ruling came down that their strike was no longer legal. They called for another strike with 72 hours notice, and then they rescinded that call. After rescinding that call, according to labor legislation, they cannot go on strike again unless they get a new mandate. Then the federal government convened an incident response group to quote unquote discuss the conflict, reports the Canadian press. The response group is a new thing that the Liberals have been using since the pandemic started. The response group is supposed to meet in times of quote-unquote national crisis or to quote discuss events with major implications for Canada, unquote. The group is made of select cabinet ministers and high-level bureaucrats. The first time that they used this group was the start of the pandemic. Then after, it was reconvened for the Freedom Convoy and... Then this one's a head scratcher. They reconvened it again for the, quote, short-lived rebellion in Russia last month, unquote. That last one's a little bit like, uh, someone please tell me that our intelligence is better than what the average person can read on Twitter. That wasn't a rebellion or a national crisis for Canada. Uh, gosh, I, I hope that a journalist teases this one out because we certainly need to know more about what the government was thinking on that one. The Canadian press report doesn't say more about this incident response group. It goes on to say how business owners are mad about the port strike, which is like reporting that it gets very wet outside when it rains, and the predictable reactions from politicians. Initially, the union had rejected the mediator's proposal because it was a four-year proposal, which they said was too long. And they said that the cost of living issues that they were on strike over were unaddressed. But in classic Canadian press style, the journalist pivots to all the people who are mad that they will make less money if the strike continues, rather than saying that the employer should just give the workers what they're demanding and allow the strike to be over instantly. Instead, they fearmonger that the strike will harm the economy and hurt the potash industry. Again, these things would go away instantly if the employer just agreed to share some of their massive, massive profits with these workers. Anyway, this is all par for the course in high-stakes labor relations in Canada, but this whole incident response stuff is something that I'm personally very concerned by, and I'll be curious to see how people react to it as news comes out that it was reconstituted for this, what it did, if it did anything, if we ever find out. Next to a stunning story from the appeal about child detention in Angola prison in Louisiana. Children there are incarcerated at the former death row unit of the Angola prison, and they've been locked in their windowless cells without air conditioning, despite the incredible heat. One child was only let out of his cell for an eight minute shower. They were shackled and handcuffed for the shower. The American Civil Liberties Union and other groups have asked the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Louisiana to immediately remove children from this unit and not transfer anyone else there. It's expected that heat will reach as high as 133 degrees Fahrenheit in the next few weeks. That, folks, is 56 degrees Celsius. Children have not always been held at Angola. They have been held at an Office of Juvenile Justice facility, but some youth had escaped previously. And so the Louisiana governor, John Bell Edwards, allowed children to be transferred to Angola. He claimed that some of the kids just needed a more secure environment and that, I guess, an adult jail was the only option. In case you're wondering, Edwards is a Democrat. 
Angola is supposed to be a temporary jail for children, while another facility is being renovated. But those renovations were supposed to have finished in April. They are not yet finished. Now, officials say that the Angola unit will be closed in the fall, but will be used until then. That's obviously cold comfort to the children who have to endure the summer heat there until then. And finally, to Holland. That country is lifting arms restrictions that had imposed in 2019 against Turkey in reaction to Turkey backing Sweden's entry into NATO. The restrictions were imposed following Turkey's military involvement in Syria in 2019. Holland is also getting rid of something called the presumption of denial policy, which also applied to the UAE and Saudi Arabia for their military involvement in Yemen. The rationale for eliminating this policy is that the Netherlands is hoping to have the legal groundwork necessary to become part of the French-German Landmark Control of Defense Exports Treaty. This treaty, quote, establishes a common framework to better address arms exports issues to third countries. Under the deal, France has been able to export arms jointly produced with Germany to countries like Saudi Arabia, which Germany has sanctioned. These deals have not been blocked by Berlin as long as German contributions are below 20%. Unquote. This is being reported from the Middle East Eye. If Holland kept their policy, they would have to block transactions under the treaty, say, if Germany were to export arms to Saudi Arabia, for example. Dutch officials claim, though, that they are still watching for whether or not their arms end up in northern Syria or Yemen. Now, if you're curious to know what the Netherlands usually exports when it comes to arms, here is what the Middle East Eye reports. Quote, the Netherlands used to mainly support parts for tanks and armored vehicles, as well as technology and parts for fighter planes and attack helicopters to Turkey, anti-war group Stop Wapenhendel said in a report released in 2017. Unquote. Those are your headlines for Thursday, July 20th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandynor.com on the Real News Network podcast feed and syndicated on campus radio stations across Canada. I hope you have a great Thursday and I'll talk to you tomorrow.